It's Tuesday, June 30th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Forty-five years after committing his first murder, Joseph James D'Angelo has pled guilty to being the Golden State Killer. In total, he pled guilty to 13 counts of murder, 13 counts of kidnap, and 62 rapes and other crimes he was not officially charged with. He will serve life in prison without parole and be spared the death penalty. Sam Stanton, reporter for the Sacramento Bee, joins us for the Golden State Killer's guilty plea. Next, the drug maker Gilead has set the price for remdesivir, its antiviral drug which has been shown to be an effective treatment for COVID-19. For people on private insurance, it will cost $3,120 for a five-day treatment. Gilead says that it could save hospitals about $12,000 per patient. Zachary Brennan, reporter at Politico, joins us for more on the cost of treating COVID-19. Finally, American intelligence officials have said that a Russian military intelligence unit secretly offered bounties to Taliban-linked militants for killing U.S. troops in Afghanistan. It is still unclear if the program actually existed, but President Trump says he was never briefed on the subject. Missy Ryan, national security reporter for The Washington Post, joins us for what we know. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Murder in the first degree, how do you plead? Guilty. Further alleged that you personally used a firearm in the course of that murder, violation to Penal Code Section 1222.5. Do you admit or deny? I admit. Joining us now is Sam Stanton, reporter at the Sacramento Bee. Thanks for joining us, Sam. Happy to do it. We now have an official guilty plea from Joseph James D'Angelo Jr. He admitted to being the Golden State Killer. Obviously, he went by a bunch of other names, the East Area Rapist, the Vesalia Ransacker, Original Night Stalker. 45 years after committing his first murder, he is finally admitting guilt. Sam, you were there in the modified adjusted courtroom that, that they had to make up because so many people were attending. Tell us what the scene was like and how it went. Essentially, this is taking place at a ballroom in the student union at Sac State University here. And there's about 100 people, a lot of them family members of victims or victims themselves. And we're all seated uh, six feet apart in uh, chairs, surrounded by law enforcement. And there's a stage set up against one wall where Judge Michael Bowman is sitting in the center. And to his left, D'Angelo is sitting in a wheelchair between two public defenders. D'Angelo is wearing a face shield, as are the uh, public defenders. And he uh, is speaking in a very frail voice. The family members here do not believe he's in bad health. They think it's all an act. I've been told that as well by some of my sources. But he appears weak. And he's essentially just said, the judge has said, how do you plead to this? And he'll say, guilty or I admit guilty to the charged counts or I admit to the uncharged counts. Yeah, I was watching some of the video, the live video from it, and he does seem very frail. And man, I just listening to his voice, he's not saying much, as you mentioned, guilty or I admit, but even that just sounds creepy. But one of the Sacramento deputy DAs even recalled that when they caught him, this was just two years ago, that he was racing around town on a motorcycle. He seemed to be living a vigorous life. And yeah, now he seems like he's aged 20 years in just two. He just seems so frail. But as you mentioned, it could be an act. 
They don't believe that for a second. And that's one of the reasons they pointed out. He was racing around town on this motorcycle, blowing through stop signs. He was doing yard work in his yard in the week before they uh, picked him up at his home in Citrus Heights. So they're not buying this at all. But they're just happy that they've finally gotten this thing to the point where he's uh, admitting his guilt. As we talked about previously, uh, he's admitting guilt to all of this so they can avoid a very lengthy and costly murder trial and all, uh, death penalty trial. In all total, what are the guilty counts? What is he admitting guilt to now? Well, there are 13 murders that begin in 1975 down in Tulare County, and there are 13 kidnapped for robbery charges, and those actually are rapes. But because of the statute of limitations, they had to charge them as kidnap for robbery counts. So he's pleading guilty to all 26 of those counts. He's going to end up with 26 life sentences from those. He'll never get out of prison. But in addition to those, there are 62 uncharged counts involving rapes, burglaries, and crimes of that nature. And he's being forced to admit to each one of them. And there's, they go into painstaking detail, even yeah. on the uncharged counts, about what he did in these people's homes. It 100% is a lengthy process because of what you just said. And as I mentioned, I was tuning into some of that. You can hear the prosecutors detailing each case, each account. And then that's when he comes in with that creepy voice. I admit to it. So definitely a lengthy process to go through the whole thing. And there are victims here. Sometimes they'll stand up as their case is being read and they'll stand there and either look at him or they look at the prosecutor who's reading the case file. What happens next after this? I know there was supposed to originally be when the uh, trial was supposed to start about in August or something. What's the next thing that happens after he admits guilt here? We're going to come back here in August. I believe it's the 17th. We're going to be at Sac State again, unless there's a magical uh, vaccine created for uh, COVID. And we'll be um, here for at least a day. It could go more than a day because they've told the victims today that you will be allowed to speak as long as you want about what he did to you and your families. And so who knows how long that'll take. This has been a wild ride of a case since it really came back again in 2018 when they finally caught him. And we've talked about this before, Sam, how the people in the area of Sacramento when this was going on were just living in fear every day because of the frequency of the tax and just how everything was happening. And then when they finally caught him in this kind of revolutionary way that they used DNA evidence and compared it on family tree websites to catch him. I mean, this has just been a crazy case from the beginning. And I'll tell you what really was driven home to me this morning is to hear them describe these crimes in their detail and then to hear him say guilty to each one of them while these victims are looking on. It just drives home what a monster this guy is. You know, you can't sugarcoat it. He's admitting that he did these crimes and they are horrific. What is his reaction during this? I've read multiple, multiple times, and I'm looking at this live feed every now and then, and he's just sitting there. I mean, really, there is no reaction, yeah. really. No, his mouth is agape. He's just sitting there, and they have to kind of urge, coax him to, uh, to say the word loud enough for everybody to hear. They hold a microphone up under his face shield so that we can hear guilty. But there is no reaction. It's just an amazing scene there. And for now, as we mentioned, Joseph James D'Angelo Jr. admitting guilt uh, that he is the Golden State Killer and we'll get to the rest of this as soon as sentencing begins and the case continues to progress. Sam Stanton, reporter at the Sacramento Bee, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Bye-bye.
when I was looking at this data with our team the other night, it was reminiscent of 34 years ago in 1986 when we were struggling for drugs for HIV. And we did the first randomized placebo-controlled trial with AZT, which turned out to give an effect that was modest. But that was not the end game, because building on that every year after, we did better and better. This will be the standard of care. Joining us now is Zachary Brennan, reporter at Politico. Thanks for joining us, Zachary. Thanks for having me. Uh, talking about COVID-19 and, and uh, the costs associated with it, right now the drug maker Gilead has now set a price for their drug Remdesivir on how much it's going to cost. For the United States, it's a little weird. There's two different prices, whether it's for the government price and then uh, for people on private insurance. Zachary, tell us about what this is going to cost people. Sure. So, yeah, Gilead put out a press release early this morning um, basically explaining how for those on certain government programs through uh, the United States federal government, they'll be paying $2,340 for a five-day course of treatment or $390 per vial. Um, and then if you're using private insurance in the U.S., you'd pay $3,120 for a five-day course of treatment um, or about $520 per vial. Why is the United States getting this two, these two different prices? So according to Gilead, um, the price difference is because they basically claim that it's the way that the U.S. system is set up um, and the, the way that HHS explained it on the media call this morning was that the VA was able to negotiate the price down um, considerably or 33% from the, the price that'll be for, you know, people covered under private insurance. And the interesting thing that is associated with this, and uh, I think they, they brought it up in the, in the House before, is that the United States has a stake in this already through the National Institutes of Health. We've run clinical trials on this. We've helped pay for some of the development on this. So that's kind of another wrinkle in this, uh, you know, with why we're getting two different prices. Yeah, exactly. So um, NIAID, which is a division of the National Institutes of Health, ran the major study um, that basically established the efficacy of remdesivir. So there have been several lawmakers, several Democratic lawmakers, who are basically calling this price outrageous and saying, you know, it needs to be subsidized further because of the amount of taxpayer funding that went into, uh, you know, the development of this drug. For Gilead, for their part, they say that on average, though, this could reduce hospital costs by $12,000 a patient. And this is because in the study, remdesivir was said to reduce a hospital stay for a person by about four days. And I guess they averaged about $3,000 a day for a hospital visit. So they're saying that it's saving everybody 12000 bucks. Secretary Azar is really kind of playing up that 12,000 number, um, and some of the other biotech analysts are basically saying, you know, Gilead invested over a billion dollars in the development and manufacturing of this drug, and, you know, again, Gilead also donated 1.5 million doses of the drug prior to setting this price, so, uh, you know, there's a, there's a strong push from investors to kind of recoup more of what Gilead has put in. So, so up until now, that was one of my questions, who's paying for it right now? Up until now, this has all been donated by them. Correct. Oh, yeah. interesting. Uh, so how is this whole thing going to work? The health department and the states are going to be managing how this is all uh, allocated. Right. So 
As they did um, with the previous donated doses, um, HHS is working with Gilead's distributor, uh, Amerisource Bergen, and basically deciding what states should be allocated what number of doses based on an algorithm on, you know, how many coronavirus cases are taking place each week and each month, and then they're shipping the doses to the states via Marisource Bergen, and then the states are basically deciding how to divvy up the doses per hospital. And so what's next uh, for all of this now that this price is set? You know, a lot of people were saying that this is kind of, since there's this is one of the first drugs that's shown to prove effective against COVID-19, they're kind of setting the bar for other drugs. We had uh, already heard about that other steroid, uh, dexamethasone, um, that could possibly help in the treatment of COVID-19. Um, that's a widely available drug already, but with this one coming out with the pricing structure on this, uh, they're kind of setting a bar. Yeah, they, de- they definitely are setting a bar. Um, I guess the, the main difference between this and dexamethasone is dexamethasone is a you know cheap generic, so none of the generic firms are going to be setting prices for this, but there are other possibly better molecules that are coming out that are in development in clinical trials right now. There's a certain class of drugs called antibodies that could prove to be very effective and could also be priced, you know, quite high. Um, but yeah, again, I, I think Gilead really sets the bar here with deciding on this price. And it, it's very unique, especially in the fact that Gilead hasn't even won full FDA approval for remdesivir yet, right? They're still working under this emergency use authorization. Zachary Brennan, reporter at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. He's saying this is fake news. Why would he say that? Why wouldn't he say, let's look into it and see what this is? Giving money to the Taliban, a bounty on the lives of our troops in Afghanistan. How do you answer to the families of those who, whose uh, family members are serving there? Joining us now is Missy Ryan, national security reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Missy. Thank you. I wanted to talk about this story. Uh, American intelligence officials have concluded that a Russian military intelligence unit was secretly offering bounties to Taliban-linked militants for killing coalition and U.S. forces in Afghanistan. Uh, This thing has blown up. The president has said he was never briefed on this. Uh, But according to some intelligence assessments, there could have been some U.S. troop deaths uh, related to all of this. Uh, Missy, tell us a little bit about this. Yeah, so this news emerged um, in the last few days, and all the details are not clear yet. But the gist of it is that there has been uh, some intelligence reporting, some American intelligence that asserts that the Russians paid money to Taliban-linked militants in Afghanistan to attack U.S. and NATO forces. And there's a number of things that remain under dispute, first and most importantly of which is whether the intelligence is correct, whether or not it is true what the intel seemed to be leading us to, which was this clandestine operation by Russia, which would be a huge escalation and obviously a very big deal. It's also unclear who had access to the, to the intelligence and how it was handled. President Trump is saying that he was not briefed, um, and um, he and the White House seem to be downplaying the significance 
of the intelligence saying that it wasn't deemed to be credible. Um, that's somewhat com- contradicted by other sources we have and the fact that it, the, uh, the, the intelligence was the subject of a White House meeting in March, which you know, suggests that people thought it was credible enough to take it seriously to, to really examine it at, at, that, at that fairly high level. Yeah, the uh, White House's National Security Council discussed it, um, but this was also happening, uh, I think it happened in March when coronavirus mm-hmm. was really starting to hit hard and parts of the country were closing down and obviously uh, parts of the government were starting to close down, people were going home and whatnot. So, yeah, up in dispute there, I think it was the New York Times that initially reported on this and they said that uh, the intelligence was briefed to President Trump, but... Uh, that's also still unclear if he was or not. Uh, he obviously he and uh, Vice President Mike Pence saying they weren't. Yeah, yep. Yeah, that's again um, the the subject of dispute. Um, you know, in what format he you know may have been may may have been had some access but didn't actually see the intelligence. We don't really know what the story was. There's there's conflicting information there between these anonymous sources at the Times and the Post and other media organizations are citing about, you know, this being potentially part of high-level information that has been viewed by at least some senior members of the administration and then what Trump is saying, which is that he did not see it. Now, Russia and the Taliban do have some type of relationship. I know that they've supplied small arms to them in the past. What does that relationship look like? Russia, as you know, has a long history in Afghanistan and fought its own insurgent war there in the 1980s. And it did start to foster more of a relationship with certain elements of the Taliban around 2015. And part of that was because Russian concerns about the Islamic State branch that popped up in Afghanistan and was very threatening. And then part of it was just sort of hedging against the U.S. planned exit from Afghanistan. Russia had wanted the United States to leave for a long time. And it has looked at various moments like we were going to leave militarily, um, from Afghanistan that the United States was going to leave. And so Russia would be reaching out and making relationships with people who would be a big player in the wake of an American expected departure. Then we think that they provided some small arms and some money as part of that, but nothing along the lines of what has been reported now. And, and what are the next steps in getting to the bottom of this? I, I know the House, uh, Speaker Nancy Pelosi, has uh, called for more briefings on this and even... Um, uh, Senator uh, Lindsey Graham has said that uh, Congress needs to get to the bottom of this. What are the next steps in figuring out what's what's what in this? Yeah, well, this is sort of, as you say, sort of blown up in the, the past 48 hours. And there's bipartisan calls for more information and a lot of sort of out, outcry from members of both parties. And so I think we're going to that will, you know, I think potentially clarify some of the details that still remain um, uh, to be confirmed. And and then, you know, there's the potential for hearings, there's the potential for outreach to Russia, um, there's the potential for, I think, a re-examination of President Trump's relationship with the intelligence community. All of that is on the table right now. Missy Ryan, national security reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. 
This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.